We have been looking at this amazing uh, temple imagery that is found at the end of Ezekiel. All of these chapters uh, strangely devoted to all of these details regarding a new temple that was going to be uh, built when the Spirit comes. And we spent some time uh, in our last lesson last week talking about how you never see anyone in the scriptures thinking that Ezekiel's temple is the means by which they would come about and move back to the land after the Babylonian captivity and try to build that temple. They did not look at that temple in that way. Rather, there was an important symbolism to the temple that you remember chapter 43 really keyed in on telling them that Ezekiel was supposed to share this vision regarding the temple and its measurements so that they would be ashamed of their sins. That's the point of this temple and this amazing vision of it. And so as we move through these, these final chapters looking at this temple, we're, we're analyzing, well, why was this temple picture given and how is it supposed to convict the people of their sins? And tonight we're going to be in Ezekiel 44 through 46 as we uh, start closing in on ending this study. And what we're going to notice is that there is a promise of a new prince. And when the prince arrives, there are certain activities he is going to participate in. And that is supposed to cause a certain outcome in his people. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight as we talk about a temple, a new temple with holiness. You have your Bibles, Ezekiel 44 uh, is ultimately where we are going to begin. It is neat to see that in chapter 44 and verse 4 that in this vision, Ezekiel gets to see the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Now, we talked about last week that that was pictured as supposing to come from the east and come to Jerusalem and fill that temple. And Jesus, when he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, comes from the Mount of Olives, coming from the east. And he is that very glory that that the scriptures are pointing to. John 1 speaks of him as being as the glory of the Father himself. John 2, Jesus walks around telling them, I'm the temple, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. That Jesus is trying to show his people, I'm that glorious temple that you have been awaiting. And if I can just kind of say as an aside, it's somewhat sad how many in the Christendom world are looking forward to a physical temple and missing that Jesus is what that shadow was looking at, that he is the temple that we've been longing for and to suggest that we need another temple one day down the road in the end times is to indicate the insufficiency of Christ as if we need another temple rather than seeing what we have in Christ. So you see that in chapter 44 in verse 4 that Ezekiel falls on his face as the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But I want you to notice before that in the first three verses of chapter 44, it says there that this gate of this sanctuary is going to remain shut. Verse 2, no one is allowed to enter. But I want you to notice in verse 3, it says only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord and he shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So 
Here is this picture of the temple. And there is only one person who is worthy to enter into those gates and began this process of this new glorious temple. And Ezekiel at this moment just says a prince. Now, it seems a little bit strange perhaps to describe the coming of Christ as a prince. But one thing I would like to remind you of is that Ezekiel has used the terminology of prince pretty regularly throughout his prophecy. For example, like in Ezekiel chapter 12, there was a prophecy about a prince of Judah who was going to have his eyes gouged out and he was going to be taken to a faraway land. That prophecy was of King Zedekiah and what the Babylonians were going to do to him as the final king uh, over Judah. In chapter 19, there is a lamentation that was taken up of the the final three princes of Judah and describing their reigns and what, again, God was going to do through Babylon against them. Chapters 21 and 22 was also describing the princes, and it seems to refer to kings and the leaders of the people in that day and time because it speaks about how they were bent on shedding blood, profaning the Sabbath, taking bribes, extorting the people, treating their parents with contempt. And so the prince's terminology can refer to kings, rulers, leaders, anyone of authority within the people of Israel. And now this title is given to the Messiah. He is the prince that is going to come. There is one particular problem that the book of Ezekiel highlighted in regards to the problem of the prior princes. Say that real fast. The problem of the prior princes. And that's what you have in chapter 22 and verse 8, where it says, You have despised my holy things and profaned the Sabbath. One of the things that this final section of Ezekiel is doing that we noted last week, but I'll say again by way of reminder is contrasting the way things were in Israel so that we would see the way God wants it to be when the new temple comes and this new priest comes. We noted that you have pictures of the people who would have these stubborn, stony hearts, but when the Spirit comes and when Christ comes, his people will have a heart of flesh. So we have get pictures of these contrasts. Here is a very important contrast. If you think about what you have learned, if you, especially if you grew up in the pews, about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, you might remember how frequently they despised God's holy things. How frequently they didn't care about temple worship. How frequently they defiled the temple and put an end to sacrifices and didn't carry out God's holy laws nor God's holy ways. It's a constant problem that you read about of Israel and Judah regarding their kings. And so now you have a a picture that God is saying, I'm going to send a new prince and things are going to be different. Now, that was concisely told to us back in chapter 37 that we looked at a few weeks ago. In verse 25, Ezekiel just made this really quick promise David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. There wasn't any other details with it. He just kind of put it out there at the end of this discussion about how he was going to bring new life into dead Israel. Chapter 37, that vision of the Valley of Dry Bones and ending that scene and talking about, I'm going to send a new David and he's going to be your prince forever. 
And there are some pictures then about what this prince is going to do. And I wish I had time that we could just, you know, comb through every detail of these three chapters. I'm going to highlight two pictures that are given about what this new prince is going to do. And the first one might sound a little strange. It has always troubled me in reading this. But there is a picture of this new prince having limitations. Now, that's always troubled me because you're like, okay, this is a messianic picture about Christ. Why would you have a prophecy about what he can't do? That doesn't seem right. But I want you to notice what's going on, and we can try to explain that picture. Now, like if you notice down in chapter 45 and in verse 7, chapter 45, verse 7, And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east corresponding in the length of one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. This is a strange thing to say about the prince, where it basically says he's going to have his land And he's not allowed to have any more land than that. He's not going to oppress the people and harm the people and take their inheritance and take their land. He has his land and he's going to stay on his land and he's not going to take anybody else's land. And you kind of go, that's a really strange thing to say. He says it again in chapter 46 and notice in verse 16 of chapter 46. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as an inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be to his uh, to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It belongs to his sons. Now watch this. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people. Thrusting them out of their property, he shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. So again, a lot of emphasis in this section on he's going to be given his land and he's going to stay in his land and he's not going to take anybody else's land and everybody else is going to be able to keep their own land. Now, why is that saying all this? Why have these limitations? You would expect this almost to say instead, and the prince is going to own it all, right? He's Christ and so he owns the world and so he gets it all. That's not the picture. Rather, there is a picture of God's people are going to keep their inheritance and the prince is not allowed to take it. Now, I've mentioned to you that this is a contrast to the way things were in Israel. Has it been a problem in Israel's history where Israel's kings went around taking people's land violently or not? Yeah, (laughs) And you might remember somebody pretty notable in that. You might remember back in 1 Kings 21 about a guy named Ahab, who Naboth has this really wonderful vineyard, and he really wants to have it, and Naboth will not sell it because it's his inheritance. It's been given to him by God. It has to stay in the family line. And so Jezebel says, well, here, we make that really easy. We'll just kill him and take the property. That's how that'll go, and that'll be the end of it. There is a contrast being made That when this new prince comes, he's not going to be like the other princes. 
He's not going to be one who's going to harm his people or is going to seize their inheritance or take what is rightfully theirs. In fact, there's a huge contrast that is made that we'll touch on in just a second. But I want you to see that first picture that it is really framing Christ as being so radically different from any ruler or leader that Israel or Judah ever had. And to be fair, than any human nation has ever had as a leader, this will be one who will be acting on behalf of the people. And that's the second picture that that is given to us in these two chapters is that you see this prince caring about God's holiness. He's going to rule and he's going to be fair and he's going to be just and he's going to do right. And the things that God says is holy, he's going to uphold that and he's going to administer justice properly. And so you see pictures of of that being given. In fact, there is a really fascinating picture of this. Listen to chapter 45 and verse 17 and notice what it says about the prince. Chapter 45, verse 17. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. All the appointed feasts of the house of Israel, he shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. This is a really interesting picture that is given because I want you to notice that the king, the prince is being put in charge of making sure that the sacrifices are provided for, that the priests will have everything they need to accomplish the work of keeping the sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings, every single offering that God has ever said to have happened. He will ensure that it happens. He provides what is necessary for that offering to take place. Now, I hope you feel some of the weight of the symbolism of what is being said in regards to what Christ is going to accomplish, because it is certainly not accidental that the writer of Hebrews comes along and the way that he talks about the work of Christ in terms of the sacrifices is pretty fascinating and seems to connect up with what Ezekiel was talking about. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 4, after stating it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now watch, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Okay, now people get stuck on that and go, wait a minute, I thought that's what he prescribed. That's not going to work in terms of atonement for the people. What needs to be provided for true sin, peace, trespass, guilt offerings so that those things are fulfilled? Well, here's the answer. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. It is insufficient. And how that paragraph ends and after talking about Regarding Christ, a body has been given to him, verse 10, and by his will, we've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is a picture that Ezekiel is giving here that says 
One, this prince is not going to harm his people, but they will receive their promised inheritance. And two, he will ensure that the sacrifices are made so that the people can have atonement. He will make sure that they have everything they need and that that offering is provided for. The writer of Hebrews comes along and says, guess what? In Christ, that's exactly happened. His body was the offering because the blood of bulls and goats would be insufficient. And so you see Christ carrying this picture out in his own body. And notice the picture here that the writer of Hebrews states, because I won't come back to this, but I want you to hold this in your mind because it's where the writer of, where the Ezekiel prophecy goes. By his will, we've been made holy through the offering of his body. And that's the big question that I give to us in chapters 44 through 46 here. Why is there such an importance about the coming of this prince? And the text here in these three chapters is highlighting to us the need for a new holiness. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 44 and notice the emphasis that is made on that. Ezekiel chapter 44 and notice verse 6. So chapter 44 verse 6. Say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations. In admitting foreigners, uncircumcised, in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all of your abominations. You have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you, in my sanctuary. Here is this condemnation of the priests and the Levites and ultimately to the house of Israel. You have not upheld my holiness. You have not maintained the holy laws, nor have you kept the temple holy. The sacrifices are not holy. You'll notice if you jump down a little bit in verse 10, the Levites who went far from me going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray, they shall bear the punishment. Verse 12, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore, I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, they shall bear the punishment. What Ezekiel is picturing is that the arrival of the new prince is supposed to generate a new holiness in the people. And that's why after saying the prince is going to come back in verse 3, this whole paragraph now starts making a contrast about how the priests and the Levites lost their holiness. They weren't holy before the Lord. They weren't carrying out his commands. And the rest of the chapter just starts talking about how God's priests have to be holy if they're going to stand before him and minister to him. He will not accept them being unholy, and that's the condemnation that is given in this section. So here's what I want to talk about for a minute. I think it is absolutely fascinating, and it is a thing that we easily miss and go over too quickly, 
how the scriptures spend their time precisely telling us that we're the new priests that God expects to be holy as we stand in service to God. Ezekiel is giving a picture. In the past, the priests and the Levites failed in their holiness. But when the prince comes, now my people and my my priests, they're going to be holy. And you read of that in places like Revelation 1, verse 5. It's a sentence we can blow over. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Here is this throw in, it almost seems, and yet it's critically important. Before John even gets into the vision, says, you know what he has made us? You know this new prince? He's made us priests to our God. Peter zeroes in on that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 1. Listen to how he combines these concepts. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. Why do we need to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? Peter, why is that so important? As we come to him, what's the big deal about this? Well, listen to what he says in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. For what purpose? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is the Apostle Peter saying, do you understand your purpose? Do you understand your function? You are a priesthood and you must be a holy priesthood to be able to stand before God and offer these spiritual sacrifices. Therefore, Put away all malice and all deceit and all slander, all of these things because of who you are. You are taking on the role now as priests ministering before God. And if you're still there in Ezekiel, I want you to notice this is exactly what Ezekiel pictures. Chapter 44 and verse 23 and speaking about his new priesthood. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. Here is this great picture, because there is a question that underlies that teaching. How can we teach people in the world The difference between what is holy and what is unholy, what is common and what is sacred. How can we teach them between clean and unclean if we are not living lives of holiness? That's why Peter says what he says. And this is why God is condemning them through the book of Ezekiel. 
How can you stand before me as priest when you're as defiled as everybody else? You have a role and a function. It's your job to teach the world what is holy and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is there. That is why we exist is to show the holiness of God and teach the holiness of God to the world. And that's why the New Testament so strongly emphasizes the need to be holy. So let me state that another way. Because I want to attach this purpose for our life tonight. Sometimes we can boil down how God tells us to stop sinning and live right as you need to stop sinning and live right. (laughs) You know, we just kind of lay it at that. And God says, stop it. So stop it. You know, and whatever God says, we have to follow And that's true. Of course, that's true. But I want us to see it as something far bigger than that. There is a reason why we wage war against sin. There is a reason why we strive for purity. There's a reason why we fight against sin and we strive for the the light of holiness. There's a reason why we try to be the light in the darkness. And the reason why is that we have been called to be the priests of God. It's not just simply, yeah, we really need to stop sinning so we can go to heaven. Okay, true. But it's a far bigger purpose than that. That we need holy lives if we're ever going to have a chance to shine as light in the darkness. If we're ever going to be the people who can go out into the world and say, here's what truth is. Here is what is right. Here is the way you should go because we're living it ourselves. And what God was saying to these people and why he rejected the Levites is because they had gone astray from him. And even specifically says that they became a stumbling block to Israel. Because they did not fulfill their purpose of being holy and teaching holiness to the people. Friends, the Lord has cleansed us so that we would be a holy temple to the Lord. He has cleansed us so that we can go out into the world and invite them to see the love and the light of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make the application very simple For us to end on as you think about this message of holiness. What do we need to do differently tomorrow to show the holiness of God? What should we do differently at work to show the holiness of God? In the neighborhood to show the holiness of God? What should we do different in our families to display the holiness of God? How should we treat and talk to one another so that we are displaying the holiness of God? And then make it more personal. What do we need to change in our lives so that we are displaying that holiness that God wants us to have? Be a priest to the Lord, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, Teaching people about the desires and the ways of the Lord. Friends, 
If we are not going to live holy lives so that we can tell the world what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is light and what is dark, what is clean and what is unclean, then who will? We can sit back and bemoan, oh, look how things are. But if we're not the ones who are living holy lives and teaching holy lives, then how is the world ever going to know what is holy and what is not? We are priests who are to go into the world and teach them the ways of God. That's what Ezekiel prophesied. When the, pre, when the prince comes, it'll be different for his people. They will live in holiness before him. And therefore, they will enjoy the inheritance that is promised. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the awesome responsibility that you have given to us to shine as lights in the darkness, to live holy lives before all who see us. And Lord, we pray that we would step into that challenge that we would enjoy the purpose that you have given to us, that we would not look at what you have called us to do as just merely stopping sin and doing right, but seeing that this is the way that we can impact the world. Help us to see the purpose that you have given to us and remind us every day, Lord, that we are supposed to live as priests in the world around us. Use us in that way, Lord, so that we can shine a light And give us the courage to say what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is clean and what is unclean. Help us to have that strength. Help us to have that courage. And Lord, forgive us for when we have failed to live in holiness before you, when we have failed in our mission and failed in our purpose. And Lord, we pray that we would strive all the more to be holy before you, Because we know you have said without holiness, we cannot see you. So, Lord, give us holy lives. And may we live up to the calling that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing an invitation song. I invite you, if any way we can help you to live a holy life before God, to turn away from sin and to embrace the purpose that God has given to us as priests in this world, shining as light in the darkness. Uh, We want to help you in that. We want to be uh, a a way to facilitate that. So would you let us know if we can help you in any way while we stand and sing this invitation song.